Are we live? We're live. Checking, check. I was telling Allie this will be this will be like an ASMR podcast. You know what ASMR is, right? Yes, so, I do. You want to do it like this tonight? <laughs> but we're here. Normal speaking voice. We're finally doing movies again. No, after all this time. We're finally <laughs> We're finally doing what? Uh oh, the lighthouse. <laughs> I could not have handheld you and led you more. It's been a long day. It's been a long day of researching this movie. I yeah, I did a lot of looking into this podcast. So did I. And we could probably talk for hours about the lighthouse. This it's movie okay. is so detailed and intricate. We could literally make this a 24-hour podcast on just the different interpretations of this film and the time and effort that went into this. Break down every minute of the film. Oh my goodness. I don't think we can do this film justice in this podcast, but we're, we're gonna try. We're gonna try. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a special guest with us today. Oh yeah. Please welcome back to the podcast. Series regular. <laughs> Allie Burnett or semi-regular. It's the third time we've had Allie on. A special appearance. Yeah, I'm happy to be here again. Again. Did you like The Lighthouse, Allie? I did like The Lighthouse a lot. I really enjoyed it. I think amongst like the films that you guys have discussed earlier in the podcast, I feel like it is definitely its own voice and mantra, and it's singular in that sense. Uh, yeah, I agree. This is, this is my favorite movie of last year, and potentially one of my top five from the last decade, the previous decade. Long time for yeah. a top five. It's very, very rare, I think, that we see a film like this. I'm extremely excited to do this podcast. We are very into this. We're all dressed as 19th century seamen. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Speaking to the sexual and Should we talk like film. this? <laughs> if it How was long have we been on this podcast? <laughs> Bad luck to kill a seabird. What? 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 Yeah. Be warned. There's no way to talk about this movie without spoilers. So here's your spoiler warning. Should we just jump into it? What's this podcast about? Wait, oh yeah. Pop culture. By the way, what's your name? <laughs> I'm Steven. <laughs> I'm Gabe. I'm, no, actually, I'm Gabe. Oh, and okay. I, and I like to party. <laughs> Hot Rod. Remember that one? Yes. It's also ironic that you said that because you you're the opposite of someone who likes to party. I used to make that joke all the time in high school because my friends and I like that movie and they'd say the same thing. Like, you shouldn't say that because you don't like to party. You're misrepresenting yourself. And I'm Steven. <laughs> And then we have Allie with us again. And this is called, we have a podcast. This is our podcast. Mm -hmm. This is episode 12. Welcome back to the podcast. The po podcast. So. <laughs> we should just jump into it. Yeah. Can you describe what, what the lighthouse is? It's a large, uh, no, it's like a building. No, no. <laughs> what the 2019 movie, The Lighthouse, is about. The Lighthouse, Stephen, is about two lighthouse keepers who try to maintain their sanity whilst living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. Can I read my description? Yeah. It's nominally a horror film set in the brutal isolation of a remote, storm-wrecked coastal lighthouse in the 1890s. That's beautiful. Can you say it again? It revolves around two lighthouse keepers, Thomas Willem Dafoe 
and younger, initially reticent apprentice Ephraim, Robert Pattinson, who eventually turns belligerent. As tensions rise between them, they deal with events that might be hallucinations mm. or an assault by the supernatural. Wow. Did you write that yourself? No. He did. He spent quite a while. Steven, you should be a screenwriter. I didn't write that. Well, this film had a modest budget of $4 million. Actually, it's the same uh, for The Witch. I think they were both for $4 million. That was Robert's first feature. It didn't make as much money, though, as The Witch. The Witch made 40. This one only made 16 million. Small return. But when you make something like this, uh, an art house film, it's to be expected. I, don't, I also don't know if it had a wide release. It wasn't super wide, but it was wide enough. You would know. <laughs> <laughs> so who is Robert Eggers? He's the director. Grew up in New Hampshire. Yes, he did. A lot of his movies, there's a lot of New England influence. Mm. Just permeates it. He's really into it. It's his muse. He's not a franchise director. He doesn't even want to be. He talked about that a lot. Yeah. He wants to be auteur. I like that word. He really wants to be auteur and is auteur. Yeah. Which, by definition, is a filmmaker whose personal influence and artistic control over a movie are so great that the filmmaker is regarded as the author of the movie. Yeah. Usually it's a writer-director, someone who's heavily involved in every step of the process. Yeah. Like Gabe said, The Witch was his first feature. It was his breakout feature. Did you guys like The Witch? Did you see it? I loved it. You loved The Witch? Yeah. The Witch was pretty good. I remember when I you, liked The Lighthouse a lot better. It's um, it's different. I mean, you, you also weren't crazy about the direction like Hereditary went, right? These yeah. Are, since these are auteur movies, as long as it's really good and well-produced, which they are, Robert Eggers or Ari Aster, I usually just am fully on board with whatever they want to do. I am now, because mid, both Midsummer and Lighthouse were my favorite films by both those directors. I think with The Witch and The Lighthouse, even though both are more in the, would you say they're both in horror genre or what? Yeah. I mean, just I, keeping it to Eggers for the sake of this podcast, because I, I, it's hard for me to separate yeah. Eggers and Aster, but mm -hmm. all four of those films were uh, horror movies. Right. The directors have, have essentially called them horror adjacent. And I think when he said that, he cringed. He was like, and I don't like saying that, but that's essentially what it is. Like, right. So with The Witch and then this film, I felt like The Witch kind of took itself more seriously. And I felt like with The Lighthouse, there were more like humoristic undertones. Yeah. Just with the exaggeration of facial features and the acting and just certain things that go on in the film. I felt like it did something completely different than what The Witch did. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of levity in The Witch. No. The Lighthouse was never pretentious because sometimes when you make a film that's so stylized like that, it's easy to call it pretentious, but there's something so light and accessible about The Lighthouse. Every I feel like more people enjoyed The Lighthouse than maybe The Witch. So do you have anything else to add about Robert Eggers? Yeah, he grew up in New England and he was really, because you know how he started in production design and theater, essentially, you probably saw that. Yeah. So he was really into costuming as a kid and a lot of his family was into that. His yeah. grandmother designed costumes for community theater. His grandfather collected antiques. So there was a lot of love pretty early on for this old mythology of the past, especially right. geographically from his home in New England. And that's kind of what defined his style. Yeah. He even took family trips to a lot of those historic sites like Colonial Williamsburg and Plymouth Plantation. And he was a self-described lover of living history. He even had influence from people around his family, like the famous painter, painter Hyman Bloom. You saw that? He had very demonic and, but a lot of it based yeah. in New England style. He was an immigrant from Latvia. 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 Yeah. But he was an American based out of New England and he had a lot of folklore 
imagery, demonic and kind of hellish imagery that that he painted that was really inspirational to Eggers. It's funny how all that comes from religion. Yeah. Yeah, especially like considering the witch, which was a Puritan family fleeing religious, I don't know if you can call it persecution, considering their unique circumstance. It's just funny how it's like a cult. It's like a cult. Mm-hmm. It's a culture of religion. It's mm-hmm. weird. And we're a cult podcast. Hey, it's a perfect fit. Yeah. So then Eggers started doing that sort of stuff, and eventually he turned into movies. He was talking about when he was younger, he just like loved horror films so much, he started making this big binder. Because he was super into the, I don't know if you can call it the occult. Or just like horror Yeah, genre, horrific stuff that no horror. kid should, they were both, they were reminiscing about their childhood yeah. and how, they're like, I shouldn't have seen that movie at that age. That really messed me up. Yeah, <laughs> but it's also made them great filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, it, it's defined who they are. Do you want to name drop his... Yeah, let's talk about the... His people? Let's talk about the people. Cool. Because he's worked with these people uh, since his since, short since, films. Yeah. So he made a short called Brothers, which was proof of concept for The Witch to get it financed. But that took years to do. And he started playing around with the idea of the lighthouse because his brother was drafting something based off Edgar Allan Poe's story, which eventually turned into The Lighthouse after he made The Witch. So he wrote The Lighthouse with his brother, Max Eggers. It was mm-hmm. a cool collaboration. Yeah. He brought along his good friend, Jaron Blaschke, mm-hmm. as the DP, who worked with him on The Witch. And, and he brothers. keeps giving him credit, saying, everything that you see from yeah. me is a deep collaboration with Jaron. Yeah. Like we said, his films are so heavily stylized. Right. That it seems like between the sound, the visual, and the writing, there's such a... Mm-hmm. close collaboration mm-hmm. yeah and he yeah. talked about the concept of the movie the lighthouse starting as his brother max's idea for having a ghost in a lighthouse yeah based around an unfinished work from edgar Allan poe about a man and his dog neptune its final working title was the lighthouse it was basically written like diary entries the original story still dealt with like the same types of themes of like isolation mm-hmm and paranoia. I don't think the final product had any similarity to it, though. Like, it evolved radically since they were working on it. I know he said Max's original 10-page treatment or had an actual ghost in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Like you, like you guys said, it was initially the Edgar Allan Poe, and then they worked on it for a number of years, and it just became something completely different. So also, he brought along his editor, Louis Ford, who was with him for his other projects, and they have a really good relationship as well. Um, his composer for The Witch, Mark Corvin... Mark's pretty cool. He's awesome. Yeah. And he actually developed, I don't know if it was specifically for The Witch, he developed with uh, one of his guitar-making friends, Tony Duggan-Smith, a giant behemoth of an instrument called the Apprehension Engine. It is a mystical beast. It's like it's, an amalgamation of Can you of call it an instrument? Yeah. It's, it's I think a, he refers to it as an instrument. It's like a big block of wood with a bunch of gizmos on it. Yeah, it has rulers, reverb banks, like guitar fretboards, everything is just thrown in there. And he even uses a uh, an ebo to mess around with the strings and create different sounds. But there's it's there's like twisted pieces of metal just hanging off of it, and he's banging on it with sticks and with his fingers. And that's how they create the otherworldly sound. Because Mark Corvin's initial goal with the witch, and you could see the evolution of that in the lighthouse, I think, is to create something unique and different and experimental. Because especially in horror, the genre is so oversaturated with just bland effects and music across the board at least in this century yeah the the sound design 
as well as the score because they kind of work hand in hand because a lot of what Mark is creating, it almost sounds sometimes like sound design. Yeah, I wouldn't even really call it uh, music. music. Yeah. It, but so, you know, like you said, the sco- like sometimes it's just cues. Yeah. But the cues are from that thing, that 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 instrument. And he's just like, pling. Yeah, it's really nuts. Everyone should check it. You can buy one yourself for, it's really expensive. You'd be better off just making one. Yeah, for real. <laughs> you could do it. You're, um, you're a musician. On that note, I do have to say the sound design in this film and the score and and all the sound in this film really, really adds to the ambiance and the, the, the esoterica of it all. Yeah. Nice word drop. You yeah. Nice. Did I steal it? Yes, that's fine. <laughs> I'm not mad. And, we can um, talk about it later. I really do think that if you haven't seen this in a theater or you didn't see it in a theater, then then you're missing out. I think most film buffs and filmmakers that I've talked to about this film have said, you've got to see it in the theater because it really, really adds to the experience. Yeah. Like a movie like this doesn't get made these days. So I like to throw out the production designer and the costume designer because this is really in a detailed period piece. They actually created the entire station, the lighthouse station for the movie, and they shot all the exteriors there and some of the interiors, and then they used a soundstage for the rest. Mm-hmm. But the production designer was Craig Lathrop, or Lathrop. I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name, but he basically defined the look of the film. And then the costume designer, Linda Muir. In this script writing process, Robert Eggers was incredibly intentional with every detail from the look to the blocking to the dialect they were using. And so everything is very realistic for the time period. Yeah, we can talk about that a little bit more in a little bit. And there's the actors. Yeah, who are the actors? Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Robbie. Robbie P. He's done an incredible body of work in the last five years, especially with A24. Before he even signed on for this film, I think Eggers pitched him something and Robert Pattinson said, no, I'm interested in only doing things that really push me as an actor. Yeah. Or that are more interesting. And then uh, Robert Eggers came back with the Lighthouse script and gave it to Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson was like, yes. And the whole time in preparation, Pattinson was really nervous and worried about how people would view him after seeing this performance. Mm-hmm. He jokingly said in one interview that I saw that he was worried that it could end his career. He said then? Yeah. Yikes. The paranoia was real. He said, I don't even know if I could get a job as a dentist after I am no longer an actor. Because I wouldn't want that guy in my mouth, if you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) And then Willem Dafoe, I mean, Robert Pattinson was great, but Willem Dafoe was the standout performance of the movie. He brought his A game. He was the old man of the sea. Like, he was so perfect for that role. And he, that that two-minute monologue he had where he was uh, cursing Robert Pattinson halfway through the movie... Mm-hmm. was apparently like two minutes of unbroken shot that they he only had to he had to throw in Robert Pattinson a shot of him to show his reaction to it but it was really him going the entire time and he didn't even blink for two minutes as per Robert Eggers during the the curse scene yeah the hark all the way through I like your cooking mm-hmm. yeah uh, Willem didn't blink yeah and he Willem, was just... <laughs> Willem has a really large background in theater mm-hmm. and he was really attracted to this role because of that background he was very excited to get into it. And Robert Eggers, in speaking about Willem, was saying how he was always ready to just go at take after take. And he always brought every performance, even in preparation. Before principal photography, Willem Dafoe in rehearsing was just take after take, fully energized and bringing his A-game. Apparently it contrasted 
with uh, Robert Pattinson's method, right? Because he likes to not rehearse. Right. Mm. So, but they're friends now, anyway. It kind of plays into those characters, too. Yeah. Let me really quick talk about kind of Robert Eggers' philosophy of filmmaking, because I think it's really fascinating. And as a film nerd, I kind of love it. So every scene, every image that you see is emanating from Eggers' kind of philosophy of filmmaking. He's obsessed with what he calls historical accuracy. And he, he said that he enjoyed the researching process almost as much as making the actual film because he just loves the, the actual knowledge and the information. He loves the process of researching. His whole purpose for With It All is he's really into creating a believable world. He wants to immerse an audience into something that is an experience through and through and have it be, in this case, of a film that takes place in the 1890s as historically accurate as possible. Mission accomplished. He, he said that if Lovecraft were to tell the story of the lighthouse, it would be that Robert Pattinson sees the light in the end. And then Lovecraft had gone to explain that the light is this God and the God is part of the Dagon cult and finds these ruins that explain the whole thing and the cult and what Eggers wants that love that, that he really doesn't really like Lovecraft for is he doesn't like the answers. He wants the questions. He wants the audience to ask the questions. So he's bringing that kind of philosophy into his filmmaking. It's a similar philosophy that David Lynch has when he creates. And I think Eggers really looks to David Lynch in creating and telling a story uh, because it's, it's, a philosophy of filmmaking that is really based around asking questions and leading your audience to a place where they can ask questions themselves. Mm -hmm. Lastly, one thing that I heard him say is he hopes that for any films going forward, even if he continues to get larger budgets and make bigger films, he hopes to maintain the kind of intimacy that you find in a film like this. I'm sure he will. Seems like he's found his stride immediately. <laughs> I think it's because he's so unique in that he's really found a niche. I mean, he, he even insulted, which was kind of funny because we're on a pop culture podcast, but he insulted pop culture and in saying it didn't interest him. He was like, pop culture is lame. And I kind of got out of that at 15 well, yeah, and got, got into like a really niche thing. Very nerdy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think he's still uh, cognizant of it, but he, it's just not his passion. Do you want to get into the technicals first? Yeah. And tell then we us can talk about the movie and the influences. Tell us about the technicals, Stephen. This is the part that really excites me when I, when I think about this film. The biggest reason that this movie was so impactful for me and was my favorite film of last year and probably one of the top like of the last decade is because it is such a direct homage and deference to so much of film history. Mm -hmm. There's so much wrapped up in this movie. It's not just what's happening on screen. It's also that it's calling back to old filmmakers from the 20s and things that were taking place long before even film was a thing. Yeah. It's doing and saying so many things. And a lot of that comes through the actual filmmaking process. And that's why I'm really excited about the technicals. The hardware. Yeah. So <laughs> he said over and over throughout press releases and stuff that when they first concepted this movie, him and Jaron, they knew that they wanted it to be in black and white. They knew they wanted it to be in a letterbox, like a square kind of aspect ratio. Mm -hmm. So most movies, you know, are widescreen, but they really wanted it to be in a square. Because that's how movies were shot then, right? Yeah. They, they wanted to use the kind of actual both cameras and film stock. Mm-hmm that was used back then, but it doesn't exist. So they, they went to Kodak and tried to collaborate with Kodak on what kind of film stock do you have? 
and they ended up on using the film stock Kodak Double X, which is a black and white negative. And it's super interesting, actually, because on top of them using that Kodak Double X, Jerry and I guess in in working with a couple people developed a filter that was a deep blue lens filter that gave it an orthochromatic look. And the orthochromatic look was the thing that they were seeking after that was the kind of look that was used back then that you'd often see in photography and stuff like that from the 1890s. The orthochromatic look is in black and white. It takes anything that's red. This is the technical aspect of it. It takes anything that's red. So imagine you have red in your cheeks or there's some kind of red on the skin and pushes that down more toward the black end of the spectrum. And it really brings out a lot of the details in a person's face. So that's why a lot of the close-ups in this movie really gave it that gritty kind of seafaring, like these people are rugged and kind of dirty and grimy. Yeah. They're dirty and, and, and everything around them is, yeah, is weathered. It's funny you mentioned the red because there's a scene where Robert Pattinson is using the sink and there's gunk that starts coming out of it after the water. Mm-hmm. I was so curious what that was initially, because it was black. And then afterwards, looking into it, they were talking about how it's blood. And I was like, oh, that's insane. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the lighting at all. How due to the nature of the film stock and the lenses, it was so hard to capture light on set that they had to use incredibly bright like fluorescent lighting. Yeah. Like super overexposed so that the camera could capture the image. And that also made it so that when you look at the sky, a lot of it is just white and kind of blown out, even on really nice days. Mm -hmm. As far as the actual film, and I said this kind of already, but the square kind of style, it was actually shot in 35 millimeter on film using film cameras, which hardly anyone does anymore. (laughs) The auteurs. The auteurs. But again, this is all for the purpose of creating, and these are kind of his words, not mine, is to create an atmosphere that puts you back in time and creates a black and white tangibility that really puts the audience there. It creates an experience, ultimately. And that's what Robert Eggers is after. He really wants to immerse the audience and he went as far to to actually get cutlery that was actually from old lighthouses, actual things that you'd see in the background or on the wall or the dishware or whatever it is. They're all actually from lighthouses and <laughs> from that era. Willem Dafoe is saying how he even learned to knit for that one 10 second scene where you see him knitting. Willem Dafoe learned to knit for that scene. My point is that everything that you're seeing in this film is truly authentic. And Robert Eggers tried to keep it as authentic as possible to the time period. And that's reflected in the actual filmmaking process. So because he couldn't use the actual cameras, he basically used the next best thing. He also used lenses from Panavision that were actually 100 years old or whatnot, lenses from the 1930s. He said the oldest lens that they use is from 1912. That's so long ago. Panavision actually had to create backings for the lenses so that they would actually go onto the cameras that they were using because Mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't fit. They had to create all new connectors. Yeah. Which I find fascinating. And then because it was shot in a square format, which is generally the IMAX format, he said he had the opportunity to watch this film in IMAX. And I don't think he watched the whole thing through because he was saying he was just really excited to watch this scene in IMAX and this scene in IMAX because it actually gave, you know, a different experience than, but it was actually a truer experience than the one that he had been kind of seeing and in the editing and coloring process he was experiencing something completely different from what he saw in IMAX and he was really excited to see it in IMAX we work for an IMAX company so it's exciting for us yeah Uh, I wish we could see it in IMAX (laughs) 
Right. Just do a limited limited release or something. And then another really interesting, historically accurate thing, this is the amount of tender loving care that went into every detail in making this film. He wanted the actual words that the characters were speaking to be as accurate as possible. He wanted them to actually speak like sailors would speak in the 1890s. And how do you do that? So he said the best resource was a woman from the state of Maine who, who lived in that time. And she used to interview sailors and captains and she would write their stories in their language. They would identify and see how seafaring sailors used to talk in the 1890s. And then they would start to identify cadences and rhythms and words that some sailors would use over others. And then they would give those identities so that Robert Pattinson had his kind of own way of talking. And then Willem Dafoe's character had his own way of talking. Yeah, they were still distinctly unique. That author in the 1890s, her name was Sarah Orne Jewett. There was another author who wrote a book on Sarah Orne Jewett's work that was more recent, and they cross-referenced all of that work with what Sarah Orne Jewett was writing so that they could more accurately identify their different speech styles. That's wild. That's the kind of detail that went into every ounce of this film. And I think that's the level of love and intimacy that I think Robert Eggers puts into his projects that really reflects in the film. And it's it's also why this film is kind of on another level of interpretation when you look at it and you can interpret it in so many different ways. You can go down so many different avenues. And that's exactly what he wants. He wants the conversation. He wants the questions you wouldn't even be questioning or wondering what this movie would be about or what this was about or what that was about if there wasn't so much care that went into every ounce of this film. Mm-hmm. Anyway, rant over. That was seven pages, folks. No, that was just one page. Holy. That was awesome. So what's it about? <laughs> now we're going to talk about The Lighthouse. About and, the movie? Yeah, about the movie. What, do you, what are we talking about? The Lighthouse. Now we're going to talk about... We talk about the story and about the theme we're gonna talk about the themes the interpretations the different interpretations the things that we took from it ali we haven't heard from you in a while the mic is yours relax steven you've done well now rest (laughs) well um a few things that stood out to me were obviously the literary influences so prometheus which is like the obvious nod greek mythology big time did you catch the proteus as well as in Thomas's well, I, character? Yeah, Willem Dafoe was like, mm-hmm. uh, so he was the Proteus. Because you said mm-hmm. earlier, you said Seafaring God, and I was like, oh, she mm-hmm. she clearly knows. Mm-hmm. It's funny even, it would have been like that without the literal imagery of Willem Dafoe as mm-hmm. the Sea God. But there's the scene towards the end where he's being attacked by Robert Pattinson. And mm-hmm. he's. it's one of those moments where you can't tell if what you're seeing is real or not, or if it's mm-hmm. a dream, but Willem Dafoe takes the the guise of Proteus or like a or a, or Neptune or a sea god, and he's maniacally laughing as he's uh, yeah. being attacked. It's subtle in the sense that a lot of people might not be familiar with these characters like Prometheus, but then you see something, and you're like, oh, that's exactly what happened in the Greek myth, mm-hmm. like how it ends with Robert Pattinson. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> you no, you, you mentioned Prometheus. I mentioned Proteus. So you talking about Prometheus a little bit? Oh, totally. No, I mean you. I'm listening to what you're saying too. The gulls pecking him out. Yeah, exactly. That um, that image at the end um, mimics the image of Prometheus and his punishment in the. Um, Why was he punished again? 
I honestly I forgot why he was punished, but I know that his his torment is that he's chained to a rock and an eagle is literally eating him. And in this case, it's a seagull. Yeah. You know what I think it was? It was the gods had taken yes. fire away mm-hmm. from the people because the people right. were being disobedient or something typical vengeful gods and then prometheus had pity on the people and he tried to steal the fire back for them which Mm. is ironically you know this is a lighthouse and there's a source of light right right. and then prometheus was punished by being strapped chained to the rock and being forced to endure virtual eternity of being eaten alive Mm -hmm. by birds yeah yeah so that i mean that's just some of the greek illusion did you have did you have any more illusion? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking in terms of Prometheus, but just the also just like the bird-like imagery of the seagull and then the eagle, um but then also just Edgar Allan Poe's obvious influence um as well throughout the film and the you know the poem The Raven. Did you ever read the uh, Raven? just a little bit. John Cusack. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe wrote a poem called the raven and the raven basically mysteriously visits a distraught lover and it traces the man's slow descent into madness so the man in the poem he appears to be having this conversation with or this struggle with the raven but it's actually pointing to his own internal struggle of the suffering that he's going through and throughout the film in the lighthouse the seagulls constantly almost taunting the main character, Winslow. Taunting or warning? Warning. What? I think it's up for interpretation, but yeah. I definitely think that Winslow, he feels kind of annoyed and frustrated by it. But then it's also the seagull has one eye and it's supposed to mimic the actual man Winslow who Robert Pattinson just assumed that he murdered him possibly mm. and he stole his identity. And so this like guilt or bad omen, however you want to interpret it, that's following him around. And then in the end, of course, he's literally being eaten by the seagull he's been eaten by his guilt he's never gone through this kind of cleansing atonement or repentance of his own guilt which i want to get into later but yeah you look like you're gonna say something. no i was curious because i love that interpretation i didn't even really consider that exactly but also there's the possibility considering how much of the story you take literally and actually happening the gull has one eye the one that keeps pestering throughout the film and at the end winslow is has a single eye as he's being eaten Mm. alive by the birds. So it's Willem Dafoe says in the course of the film that the gulls are inhabited by the spirits of dead sailors. So what if it's Pattinson's soul in the gull and he is like living in some kind of weird like time loop and he's trying to warn himself of the impending doom and and then Robert Pattinson just kills the gull. We're getting deep. I love that. Yeah. It reminds me of the goat in The Witch. (laughs) Yeah. The the animal... (laughs) Satan. As what's, some kind of conduit. What's his name again? Black Philip. Black Philip. I'll remember that sleep. closing scene from The Witch Forever, the last five oh minutes of that gosh. movie. It's horrifying. Wouldst thou like to live <laughs> Me and my sister in law. I only saw that movie once. About that. And I'll. Yeah. No, I, I lose my shit over that one. <laughs> uh, but you know they removed those eyes in, in post? No, they weren't actually single eyed goals. Well, I figured. Oh. Yeah, I thought they were. Oh. I was sad. Anyway, I love that though. So I there's love- the goal. I saw someone also said, um, I can't remember if the head that he found later on in the movie was missing an eye, but assuming that was maybe the person. Well, the head was assumed, I think, generally to have been the last assistant. Oh, the wiki. wiki. Right, right, right. So it could even be that 
Wiki mm-hmm. is inhabiting the gull, and he's trying mm-hmm. to warn Winslow as well. Yeah. Anyway, you spin it. The bird seems like he's there with a purpose, mm-hmm. and Winslow doesn't understand, so he's just trying to. That's how I interpreted it. I interpreted it that that was Winslow's body that was washing up, and again, like Ali said, kind of bringing that guilt back in, and he's being haunted by that guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was just gonna say to the Poe relationship, like the Raven and the Seagull are both instruments used to mirror the character's paranoia, dread, and internal struggle with their own suffering, whether it be obviously in the poem, more turmoil over losing someone. Um, but in the film in Lighthouse, his suffering, I think, has to do more with his own hell that he's living in. He's ignoring. Did like, we say purgatory already? Oh, no, we haven't. Because yes, that's the first thing exactly. when I think of the film as a metaphor rather than a literal experience. Exactly. I, the first thing I think of is like the island is is like purgatory, like mm-hmm. like lost, maybe. And not to it's lost. not like lost. Oh, okay, maybe not. But but yeah, mm-hmm. because he's like uh, one of the ways you can take it is he's you know living through, like you said, he's paying for the sin. Well, he didn't really kill the guy, but he let the original Winslow die. Right. The person whose name he took, the foreman of his previous job. The reason he's here is because he's on the run he's for on this. The run. Mm-hmm. He let this person die that he could have saved, and now he's paying for that in this sort of purgatory place. Right. He can't outrun his own guilty conscience, so he's trapped within this literally confined place, but he then also within his mind. And speaking of purgatory, I was also thinking of the religious symbolism of even the lighthouse itself, and thinking like from the Hebrew scriptures, like the Holy of mm-hmm. Holies or the Tabernacle. So the place where only the high priest can enter behind the veil. Um, So that is essentially Thomas's character. He's like that high priest who can enter behind the veil and he can experience the holiness or whatever ecstasy that might be. Yeah, Um, that's fantastic. I didn't even think about that. So the main character, Winslow, he can't enter behind that veil. He can't enter into the tabernacle he's forced to be below and he wants so badly to see that light and to taste it and to feel it but he is unable to to enter it until later on but even then he's not truly cleansed or atoned did you ever think at any point garden of eden as a possible Mm -hmm. because i didn't even think of the tabernacle kind of Mm -hmm. illusion because the first thing you think of is the garden of eden right it's the first story in the bible you know with the people in it anyway Mm -hmm. i never considered as we continue into the realm of metaphor, considering possibly that Thomas Wake, Willem Dafoe's character, is God in the story, mm. this could even be branching off the purgatory idea, and mm-hmm. that uh, Thomas Howard, or Ifram Winslow, Robert Pattinson's character, is man, and God is testing him mm. to see if he will taste the fruit, go for the light, go for the fruit, and he eventually does, mm. and he he pays dearly for it he falls literally mm-hmm. and dies mm, i like that so i don't know it's just another interesting way to consider it yeah no and he's as you know alluding back to the garden like when they taste of the fruit their eyes are opened and when he experiences that light there's like this horror and ecstasy that he experiences at one yeah at one time and his eyes are literally open and his face it's like this really cathartic like experience as an audience watching this scene where he's just like is it horror is it ecstasy is it yeah, joy is that's, it thrill that's like, the big question what did you think the first time you saw it like the very first time because you guys had different opinions coming out right when I first saw that moment I thought it was dread and horror I terror it was p- 
pure terror. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that is because I have a proclivity toward that because of Lynch and other things that I enjoy that mm. that is mainly dread and horror and terror. And Allie interpreted it as ecstasy. That's like, so fascinating. Yeah. I was convinced walking into the theater, oh, he saw something that was overpowering and overwhelming. And Allie was like, oh, I didn't see it that way at all. I saw it as those both of those things combined. And it's an inextricable relationship between the two. And a lot of that is Lovecraftian for me as well. Seeing something beyond your understanding, or in this case, maybe it was like a perfect understanding, like the moment if it is metaphor that he reaches into the light and he comes to some sort of overwhelming realization of like something, whether it's like the nature of what's happening to him or what, whatever, but he is both at once overwhelmed with ecstasy and terror, you know, euphoria and dread together, which is why I love it so much. I don't even consider it to be ambiguous. I consider it to be both those things at the same time. And it's funny looking at the script and even the screen direction at the day, because the script is a little different. It reads... It's initially pleasure, and then it becomes pain. And in the script, his hand even is like completely burned off, and then he falls. Like it's one, and then it's the other. Mm -hmm. The way they talk about in the script, Eggers told Pattinson, he said, looking at the light was so pleasurable that it starts to become incredibly painful, mm -hmm. and then incredibly frightening afterward. And then he says, it's just like an orgasm that won't stop. Mm. Those are the words he used. I was going to talk about that too, but like when it shows William Defoe's character in the presence of the light, it is like a very sexual scene. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I think it is like a perfect mixture of horror and dread. Much like the suitcase in Pulp Fiction, you never really find out what's truly inside. Yeah. What do you guys think that the light symbolizes? The knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> I think it's like an omnipotence maybe, you know, like there's so many ways you could take it. I heard another interpretation that it's whatever that person wants most in the world at that time. So all that Thomas Wake wanted was that sexual gratification, and he got it in the form of whatever it was. Thomas Wake even describes the island in the lighthouse as his wife, mm -hmm. and he's like, it's, it's my love. It's my first love, my last love. Right. And then from Winslow or Thomas Howard, Robert Pattinson's character, it's like maybe what he's really wanted this whole time is to be punished and to be held accountable for his actions, and because he's so racked with guilt over what he allowed to happen before he came to the island. And this was like him finally getting that, and he's just being like crucified in his soul, and that's why he's just screaming mm -hmm. at the end. I don't know. I have actually never thought about this because the mystical account of seeing the thing that you have been longing for and finally getting it, mm -hmm. it never occurred to me as something that matters if that makes sense. It, yeah, whatever it is specifically, I don't think it matters, but, but just the fact that... But what it is to me is the thing that he was longing for throughout the whole movie and finally got it, but it killed him. Yeah. And that's the story. That's the more interesting thing to me is it's a story about someone who was longing for something and was basically told, don't, it's, you know... It's don't like, do it, you don't, can't Don't go it. there. Don't want <laughs> and then finally gets what he wants and it doesn't end up being the thing that he wants. Um, it's a lot like the story of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. It's the exact same thing. Um, which I, I love that story for that reason is because it's it, in the end, it's a human story about what it means to be human and try to attend to our most human and debased needs. Mm -hmm. And one of the largest ones I think is curiosity. And so this film is really exploring curiosity and what that actually means and looks like for this character. I mean, on top of all the other themes that you guys have already discussed and him running away and hiding and 
guilt and all that other st- and sexualization and all other stuff that you guys were talking about. And there's a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, even just the lighthouse. My, my favorite interpretations of this film, just kind of turning a little bit here, is that because both Willem Dafoe's and Robert Pattinson's characters both end up being named Thomas. One of my favorite interpretations of this movie is that it's the same person. And it's kind of this play between these two sides of oneself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of Jungian or Freudian. It's like the it or the ego. When I first saw it, I kind of was piecing this together in my mind while I was watching it. But I really started to think, oh, this is kind of from the perspective of of Pattinson's character, of Pattinson's Thomas. Yeah. Because he's the one looking up from his perspective to Willem Dafoe, who's at the top of the lighthouse, and he's, I don't know, you could say making love with the light. He's walking back and forth, and he just loves being up there and immersed in the light. And you're getting Pattinson's perspective, and you're following his character, and every time he interacts with Willem... In fact, I think Robert Eggers said that Willem Dafoe's scenes are a lot less than Pattinson's scenes, meaning meaning that it's Pattinson's movie. It's You mean like quantity-wise? Yeah, that character's film is everything is through his perspective. And so he's in battle with himself, mm-hmm. and the other side of himself is this old, curmudgeon-y, beaten-down, uh, shaming character. Sadistic. Sadistic, shaming character. Yeah, he was constantly emasculating Pattinson. Yes. <laughs> in every way. You could talk about like gender roles. Like he's like, go do this, go clean this, go do this, blah, blah, blah. And like referring to him as a dog. It's not only emasculating, but it's also dehumanizing. Dehumanizing, yeah. yeah. To me, the movie could be on a cycle. When Pattinson's Thomas sees the light, he becomes Willem Dafoe's character. And then he falls and then it starts all over again. That kind of thing. And so the death would just be the death of Winslow. And Wake is... This is reborn in a way. I mean, there's probably some of that because he gets buried and then there's that metaphor of being buried and back to the earth and coming. I don't know. It could be interpreted in a lot of ways. Did um, you ever consider a, like what it, what it would be like if it was literal? If, if it wasn't like uh, magical? What if it was just Thomas Wake going, losing his mind and like gaslighting Thomas Howard into thinking he's crazy and then they both end up dying on that note because i i do think about the literal nature of the film that i'm watching that's actually my first inclination when i watch something it's always a literal translation yeah and then the analytical part comes later for me i really have to think about it to get there because i just i take it at face value so the literal interpretation for me is that ephraim or or pattinson's thomas is this man who has these massive identity problems and also is very insecure and he doesn't even know the truth. And so it's this search for truth, but he's also running away from himself and his past, which is himself. So he's running away from himself. He doesn't know who he is. He's worried that he might become something that he doesn't want to become. I'm saying when you take it at face value, it's all about identity and insecurity. Also, this is a totally different interpretation. You could look at it as what it means to be an adolescent. Yeah. (laughs) Because look, he's masturbating. He's got this father figure. He's running away from his old self and he doesn't know and he's afraid of what he's becoming. So I think it could be just an interpretation of adolescence. I mean, that's just another interpretation. But the very literal thing is has to do with identity and, and insecurity, I think. Yeah. And jumping off of what you said, too, I think Winslow's character, he's the classic unreliable narrator. Because even with his accent, it changes. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but it yeah. does fluctuate 
throughout the film. And I think yeah. it's very intentional um, because he doesn't know who he's claiming to be. You know, he's taking on the identity of another man's name. He's on the run. So he, like Steven said, it's like an identity issue, but he's also not sure what to believe about what even going on they don't know how long they've been on the rock and they don't know how long have we been on this rock rock? (laughs) five weeks two days (laughs) which also plays into like is defoe manipulating him and and i think he is because you are taking it more literally you even get that one scene where after defoe like literally is like chasing him right and he's like trying to hurt him i can't remember exactly what's happening and then afterwards he recounts it to to robert's character saying like oh no you were the one who was trying to do that to me and so he's manipulating him into thinking no you are the person who is dangerous and you're the one who needs to be tamed it's a constant power struggle throughout the film between mm. these two men which also plays into like some of the sexual undertones as well yeah the way they they oscillate between uh, a companionship and a camaraderie and then just hating each other's guts is really interesting gabe do you have anything else to say about homoeroticism uh yeah it's it's a cool. <laughs> no, it's really funny. I'm, they, I'm into it. They come so close to kissing at one point mm-hmm. when they're drunk, when they're absolutely blasted out of their minds. And up to that point, I don't think I was entirely clued in on some of the Second. subtle movements and the undertones. But when, when you walk out of the theater, you're like, yeah, that was weird. And both of them felt like they were vibing at some point. Yeah, I was reading that the director expanded on the whole queer subtext And he actually said that the heart of the movie's central relationship is that, but that the whole thing is about power dynamics. So it is about Willem pushing, 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 pushing. And then there's this pent up anger and pent up erotic energy and pent up smells. Where is that breaking point? With the two sexuality, Egger said, isn't a binary gay versus not gay. It's less about exploring human sexuality or sexual orientation and more about the questions that those homoerotic sexual overtones represent from a broader Freudian perspective perspective like thomas humiliating ephraim by forcing him to do all the more feminine domestic duties like we said before which leads him to even say that he didn't sign up to be anybody's wife you know this the phallic symbol of the lighthouse itself he constantly refers to the lighthouse as she her equating to a better wife than any living woman and according to defoe the homoeroticism of the film does speak to the aspects of identity and what it means to be a man i don't know i like when i first watched that film i wasn't paying attention to those things so I, th- I thought it was interesting, like, reading, like, what the director actually had to say about that as being a relationship with the script itself. I thought that was interesting that that's something he was trying to convey. Yeah, there's a definite commentary on masculinity. Mm-hmm. And in, I think you'd call it toxic in this case, the way they treat each other. Mermaids. I mean, all those films have that as well. The Witch had these family dynamics where there was a constant sort of competition between brother and sister, mother and father. His short was called Brothers, and it was sort of a Cain and Abel story. Mm -hmm. So there's always been a level of that. And to see it here play out between these two figures, they're sort of like, at times, father and son or brother or friends. It's an interesting take. What did you guys think of, like, the graphic scenes in terms of, like, the squid and, like... And the mermaid? Yeah. What do you think he was trying to say? That, again, could be, I think, like we were just talking about, could be interpreted as literal or metaphorical and... It goes both ways for me. I mean, some days I think about this movie and I think that really happened. Other days I think that was all in Ephraim's head. Mm. I took a lot of it 
fairly literally while still leaving room for metaphor. But there was never a point where I thought the mermaid was actually there. Mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. thought, and the same with Willem Dafoe turning into the old man from the sea. That was always a manifestation, I think, of Thomas Howard's repressed sexual drive. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think about these things, too, from Thomas Wake, Willem Dafoe's perspective, because we don't often humanize him in, in a conversation about this movie because we think of him as just a, like a foil or the antagonistic entity, whatever he may be. But he's a very human person as well. Like His relationship with the light is, like you said, is very sexual. And he's even very protective of it, and he fears losing it to this younger man. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. What if he was the main character of this story, and this young guy is coming up to his place, and he's trying to take everything that he thinks is his? Mm-hmm. Well, and each man who comes that he employs, mm-hmm. it's kind of this idea. Is he threat. constantly manipulating each person that comes into his employment? And then, because, you know, you, you see the head of the last wiki and so is he just constantly threatened by each person and he's he, he's the only one that wants to attain the lighthouse yeah. i'm similar to i was gonna bring up moby dick yeah moby dick has a huge influence on the film too big and, influence yeah and like the whale i mean being a s- symbolism of hubris that, but, un, that like unattainable glory mm-hmm. that, that constant pursuit yeah mm-hmm. do we have any other interpretations of the film I think we've covered it to death. There's a lot, I'm sure, that we don't even know. So getting into some of the influences, both Robert Eggers and Ari Aster, but we could talk about Eggers right now, was really influenced by a lot of other filmmakers. Oh, yeah. Ingmar Bergman. It was really interesting listening to that podcast because they were both going off for 20 or 30 minutes about Bergman's films. Well, they, they, they listed all of them. I think Eggers is more into him a little bit than Ari Aster. But for those of you that don't know, Ingmar Bergman is a very famous Swedish filmmaker from the 50s all the way through to the 80s, 70s? Uh, well, he stopped doing film film in TV. the 70s or 80s, but he kept doing t- like movie TV, yeah, yeah. which you can consider that to be the same. Um, some of his well-known works, especially that influenced Eggers, were Persona, Through a Glass Darkly, The Silence, Seventh Seal. Cries and Whispers. The one they, I think, said their favorite was Fanny and something. Fanny and Alexander. Yeah, and I think that was one of his technical TV movies. But the way that Bergman wrote his characters really was unique, I think, and different. Yeah, the thing that they really, really like about Bergman is not just his imagery, and and a lot of it is black and white filmmaking, which has really influenced this film, but it's also his writing. They said his writing was unlike anyone else's and the way that he would write characters that I would often do monologues, which I think influenced the monologues in Lighthouse, were unlike anyone else's. They also talk about the Bergman close-up, and that yeah. it's something that filmmakers that, that are really into O-tier filmmaking often aspire and try to recreate they call it the chase constantly chasing after this Bergman close-up which is really just a framing and lighting and making a character look extremely interesting um, in a way that you don't really see very often and I I think that really came through in the lighthouse here yeah he also mentioned David Lynch's Blue Velvet. He mm-hmm. mentioned Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. He mentioned he mentioned Edgar Allan Poe, which we've mentioned many, many times. They had a whole slew of director writers yeah. that I didn't even recognize. There were a dozen. If you guys want to take an even deeper dive from the voices themselves, go check out the A24 podcast. Yeah. He talked about early Picasso as an influence. He said growing up, he liked everything from Mary Poppins to Conan the Barbarian and then Star Wars. They mentioned Nosferatu a lot, which Gabe just brought up, but that was a German expressionist horror film based on Dracula by F.W. Murnau. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who is a poet 
and Herman Melville with Moby Dick were both influences. And then obviously the archetypes and myths of Prometheus, other sea mythology, Neptune, Sirens, New England, English-based mythos. The black and white, the contrast between the light and the dark. And what's that called? Chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro. It's spelled Chiaroscuro. Also, another artist's influence was Schneider. His painting, Hypnos, was a heavy influence in the scene where Defoe's character, there's light beaming out of his eyes um, towards Robert's character. And you'll have to Google the painting, but it's really, really haunting. And it's, you know, this kind of... The shot from the film was like the... It was like the, the painting, exact. almost it's, verbatim. Yeah, it's this grim character. He's actually covered with like a black head covering and he's very muscular and he's holding on to uh, a slightly shorter character. So a younger character who's completely naked, completely vulnerable. And um, the light is just beaming out of his eyes onto the younger character and his and his head is, is backwards. It's, you it's know what this extremely is? erotic. Being He's kind of being overcome by the light that's mm-hmm. coming from his eyes. Power struggle. Yeah. I feel like Robert Eggers is helping create some sort of American mythos, you know, that doesn't exist. So many cultures have, I mean, not just the visual style, but the stories. Like, these are these are essentially parables that we're telling, or cautionary tales. A lot of these young filmmakers are doing that, but especially Robert Eggers, just due to his area of expertise. Well, he he talked a lot about how he feels like America lost a lot of the, the grittiness, even when it comes to fairy tales, which is something that mm-hmm. Ali is constantly saying, that a lot of the mythology that we have in America is based on European and Greek mythology. And then a lot of the European mythology and, and fairy tales were that America has lost kind of the ethos behind those stories and the, the gritty nature behind those stories and, and the point behind them as well. He talks a lot about how Anglo-Protestant culture is a thing, and he likes asking the question, where did European paganism survive? And that's why he spends so much time, I think, in the mythos of New England and the the stories and, and the fables that are from that locale. Period pieces. Yeah, The Witch was 1630s, Puritan colonies in America, and then this was 1890s. And he said in the end that the edit and the color correct were the things that he enjoyed the most. The least stressful. The least stressful things. He said everything else was extremely hard. Yeah, the shoot sounded miserable, and everyone said it was miserable. And then both him and Ari Aster, and we probably will say this again when we do a Midsummer podcast, they praised A24 for giving them the freedom to make these movies. Holy shit. They've been churning out quality content. I counted them. My top five movies of last year, Parasite excluded, because that would have been an A24 movie if it was domestic. But my top five outside of Parasite were all A24 from last year. It was Midsummer, The Lighthouse, The Farewell by Lulu Wang, um, Waves by Trey Edward Schultz, whose last film was another A24 horror, It Comes at Night, and five was uh, Uncut Gems by the Safdie Bros. Oh, yeah. All A24 in one year. Well, A24 has been killing it year after year for the last, I don't know. But the crazy thing is that they're not... Seven years? Uh, it's been almost, yeah, almost a decade. But they're not always involved in the production. Usually it's just distribution. The distribution, yeah. But the fact, and when they, I think this one was one of the ones where they were more involved in production. But like you said, they gave Robert Eggers complete control over his story. Yeah, and yeah. I think they did the same thing with Eggers. And I think they do the same thing with a lot of these other films outside of the horror genre. And it just shows the quality that can be made. And these are all young people, too. They're all in their 30s, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. And then lastly, I I just want to make this known that a lot of people who see this film, and they talk about this a lot, 
on this podcast where Ari Aster and Eggers were talking that there's a large amount of people who see this movie mm-hmm. and they are like, this is boring or it's bullshit or it's not horror. They're saying it's not enough horror, but people are very critical. There's a lot of people who really do not like this movie or, or see it. And then they're like, Bleh, that was, that was stupid yeah. or lame or pointless. I think that these kinds of films are extremely rare and the kind of experience that you get with this these kinds of movies, they maybe happen a couple times a decade mm-hmm. that are this detailed and this real and lively. What Steven said about like people generally not having the best response to this film, right? Like in general, a lot of people didn't understand it or just weren't impressed by it, whether they thought it was pretentious or they thought it was just meaningless, whatever the... Um, or even just too difficult to understand. Yeah, whatever the reaction is it, it reminded me of like the reaction to Terrence Malick's Tree of Life where you know there's this long sequence in the towards the beginning and there's all these different things that are happening that seem meaningless and a vast majority of audience members like completely walked out of the theater and is that true yeah Jeez. and that's one of my favorite films but I know I have a particular taste but at the same time like I just want to encourage anyone who's listening to give these types of films a chance go into it with an open mind and just a perspective of wanting to experience something experience something new and appreciate film as an art form or what the actors are achieving what the tones achieving even if you're just looking at it for purely the expertise of the era and what the film accomplishes whatever you're going into it for i would just say like let your expectations be more um nimble and just be open to experiencing these types of films in a new way because i think that you'll gain more than what you lose and ruminate on it and see it again i couldn't have said it better myself i tried and then she she said the thing i was trying to say it's just such a misfortune when there's a lot of people intelligent wonderful people who um also just don't want to take the time to watch these types of things but i just think that it can really enrich um our minds and it's a great thing to experience i'm so mad really why because out of the five films that i just listed and we can even throw in malik's new movie a hidden life none of those were recognized and none of them did particularly well i think even though they had wide releases just because people aren't willing to take that step to see beyond what they know yeah and that's that's kind of what i was really trying to say is that these films are so rare i I guess I'm kind of just tired of trying to convince people that these are good, yeah. good artful yeah. or honestly good works of art that that are so unique and so scarce and few and far between. Mm. These movies are very hard to explain to people who don't like to think critically or intelligently about film or at all in their day to day lives. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be Eggers and Aster. It could be any of these films like Lulu Wang's The Farewell is a challenging piece that makes people consider their mortality and then the effects they have on other people. And it's just like, if you could see that movie and digest it, you'd become a better person just walking out of the theater. Yeah, 100%. It's very sad to me. I, I think it's it's very telling of the culture that we live in. To me, going and seeing a film like this is like going to... It's like going to, to like a gallery or an art museum. And I guess that's kind of a niche crowd in the end. Yeah. I guess just just don't be too quick to say this isn't my kind of movie. Because maybe it's not your type of movie. Maybe it's not your go-to. Yeah. But it doesn't mean there's not, you know, 
truth and beauty and things to discover within something like this when you have that time to actually decompress and analyze and process the things in that piece of art sometimes it makes you fall in love with it more than even thought you liked it in the first place or maybe you didn't like something but then once you talk and marinate in it then you realize different things that you actually liked about it or just different things that you found interesting or discovered um so i think like talking about the things that you're witnessing in art forms is really really important and i think in our culture we take something in binge watch it go on to the next thing rather than actually like watching something taking it in talking about it and actually soaking in its truth and its art i think robert eggers understands that and he's fully on board with it and ari aster and their contemporaries and they're not making these movies for everyone and they understand that most people won't see it and the some of the people that do see it won't like it, and that's fine. But the fact that it's there and it's lodged in pop culture, even in such a niche way, like a thorn in the foot, people will think about it and they'll come back and they'll say, I remember The Lighthouse, and that was meaningful, even if I didn't pull everything out of there that everyone else did. And that's all that matters in the end, right? You best start believing in ghost story. <laughs> You're in one. <laughs> you know what? Close us out on the last two pages of the screenplay, right as... Pattinson is ascending the stairs to the light and read it for the people listening. Because it's different than the movie, but it's fascinating to see the words on the page. Interior lighthouse, breezeway, night. Crawling, trembling, and bleeding, Young slowly works his way to the tower. Young continues slowly. Young ascends the ladder slowly, and using the key, he opens the hatch that leads into the lantern room. The dazzling light swirling, Young is hypnotized. Young looks ahead. There it is. The Fresnel lens. It is a massive six-foot-tall jewel of indescribable beauty with eight shimmering brass legs. It seems to sing. He walks toward it. As if by magic, the lens rotation begins to decelerate. The lens stops turning. He marvels at it. Slowly, the door of the lens open like wings, facing him. The light grows brighter. He takes it in. A tear falls from his eye. He smiles. Slowly, he puts his hand into the light. A deep, bassy, fire-crackling sound is heard as he touches the flames. The light grows brighter. His hand is burning but he keeps reaching, the crackling sound growing louder and more otherworldly. Young starts to shake with insanity, his face distorts, the light grows brighter, inconceivably bright. Young screams, Young starts trembling, crying, he's terrified of what he has seen. He cannot fathom it, he foams at the mouth, he teeters, he's losing his balance, he's falling, he falls backward out of frame out of the lantern room, slam, into the machine room, bang, and down the stairs. All the way down the long winding staircase, tumbling, tumbling, grunting, twisting, bones breaking and clanging down four stories of stairs until Young lands with a dull, bloody thud. Is he breathing? Fade to white. That's nuts. That's um, crazy. I'm ready to kick you out of my house, Gabe. I'm ready to be kicked. Now, you should play the last track from Mark Corvin's score over that reading, and then we can start an audiobook line. 
Stephen reads scary stories. Ali, do you want to say anything to close us out? Yeah, a closing word. Yeah. Just good day and bless you all for listening. Hey, good. thanks for staying with us this long, guys. This is the Cult Popcast. It has been and will be again. Gabe is uh, still single. <laughs> <laughs>